Tindering. <laughs> if you want to digitally stalk someone, wait until after the meeting. Uh, all right. So, all right. Uh, one of the the classic uh, misconceptions that people bring to Buddhist practice is due to poor translations of the Buddhist teachings. Um, a concept he had called uh, Upadana, which means it should have been translated just as clinging. Uh, the tendency to try to get happiness and peace from objects and behaviors that are not capable of providing lasting peace that are just short-term pleasures. The Buddha called that upadana, and it should be translated as clinging to something, but many translations use the word attachment. If you want to get some Buddhist goat, just say, oh, you look very attached to that, uh, that whatever that is, you know. And So attachment uh, in Buddhist circles is often used as a negative attribute, but in fact, in psychology, attachment, uh, the ability to securely bond with another human being or other human beings is probably the most positive attribute there is. In fact, it is very much, from any psychological perspective, attachment is one of the most important skills, secure attachment, that you can have as a human being. because. Other human beings are the way that we understand our emotions. They're the way we regulate our emotions. They're the, the way we feel safe in the world. Uh, so I never use attachment to mean something bad like clinging. clinging. For me, attachment is always positive. Another misunderstanding is the Buddha had the word viraga, which is a positive thing. It means uh, calming down, releasing our uh, obsessive fixation with something. But very often, that positive attribute was translated as detachment, which, which in psychology is actually not terrific. Detachment is actually very often a state of aloofness, indifference, not caring, being emotionally numb. So both these poor translations of translating something bad as attachment and something good as detachment gives the illusion that the Buddha was not that interested in uh, people having really secure connections with other people. And in fact, Nothing could be further from the truth. Buddhist practice is not a um, solely internal practice, though the image of the monk sitting in the Himalayas, uh, which would make them anyway Mahayana. I'm not a Mahayana Buddhist, but you, you have the, we all have the image of the monk up in the Himalayas, and there's the, you know, the guy climbing up and you know, getting to ask a question or something, and. Uh, it gives the illusion that spiritual practice is somehow about isolation and seclusion and not being surrounded by community and nothing is further from what 
the Buddha taught, uh, when asked by his Lieutenant Ananda uh, how important spiritual friends were to the path, being surrounded by a supportive group of people, the Buddha said it was the entirety of the path. And when the Buddha was asked what his prerequisite was for anyone attaining awakening or liberation from suffering, he said, wise spiritual friends. He was asked, what, is, what should we look for to secure our practice? And, we, and he said, friends who are willing to come to our side to give good counsel and sympathy whether in times of joy or sorrow, and we should cherish such people as devotedly as a mother cherishes her own child. There's no suggestion the Buddha ever made that lay practitioners or monks should ever uh, drop or relinquish attachment to friends to the people in our lives that um, we seek secure support. So um, it's important uh, from tonight's perspective to understand that. Uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the things that make human relationships uh, difficult at times. and. Uh, some of the ways that we can counterbalance. Um, from a psychological perspective, there are two primary fears that we have that make it difficult to bond with other people. And uh, by bond, I don't mean just the friendly nod, the hello by the office cooler, uh, or somebody you see in the street, or a friend that you just say hello to, or, you know, the, anything that has a performative aspect where you don't feel permitted to really say what's going on in your life. To really connect with other people, we have to have a relationship where we feel permitted to talk about some of the most uh, dark passengers we're carrying around. We all have... Uh, certain emotional states that feel very awkward to express. No matter how good a job our parents did to make, to be emotionally tolerant, all people have certain emotions that they're just not that comfortable with. Um, and so those very emotions that our parents didn't tolerate very well will often find very, very difficult ourselves to feel comfortable expressing or acknowledging. And when we feel these emotional states, we'll want to change them or get rid of them. Lots of guys I know, when they feel sad, they can't admit it, so they get angry. Uh, they deflect sadness towards anger. Some people deflect anger to humor. They joke off when people have been insulting towards them or have mistreated them. Uh, that's a form of deflecting. Sometimes we'll intellectualize our emotions away or sometimes we'll uh, uh, 
will bury them by seeking distractions to pull our attention away from the... If we're lonely, we might turn on the television, etc. If we feel isolated, we might go on Facebook for a pseudo-connection. And two of the, the strongest uh, things that get in our way from connecting are, one, abandonment fear, and two, engulfment fear. I've talked a little bit about this in the past. Abandonment fear are people who feel uh, or have experienced at one point in their life a traumatic separation or just felt really not securely connected to one of their key caretakers. And these people in relationships uh, very often will have the tendency to not give enough space, to be insecure, willing to drop their boundaries, do things they're uncomfortable with, uh, go along with uh, activities that are not their choice, um, and they are willing often, out of desperation, to seek some kind of connection. They're willing at times to even trade sex for intimacy, the feeling of intimacy. Intimacy sometimes seems similar to sex in that there's a lot of eye contact. <laughs> and people like to pretend that they're, you know, completely always utterly into each other, even if that's not always the case. So if we really are seeking intimacy that we don't feel we have, we sometimes can desperately try to get that intimacy through counterfeit means. When people have this kind of... When people have abandonment fear, they generally fall into a category of attachment called insecure. Uh, insecure uh, and they uh, are preoccupied and uh, the one of the tendencies is to become very prone to spiral off into uh, rumination. Rumination is whenever there's a feeling of loneliness or any uncomfortable feeling to, rather than attend to the feeling and hold it, to go off and retell a story about the latest relationship, the latest person or the latest or some relationship in our life, and to get hooked up in the um, the details and the particularities and the singularities and what he did and what she did and what should have been said and what wasn't said and replaying the narratives rather than feeling the feelings. Trying to figure out what went wrong. People often feel safer being with thoughts than with the actual feelings, but actually... Uh, Frankly, thoughts will do you a lot more damage in the long run because retelling the stories of a relationship that's struggling or conflicts only makes those conflicts worse and re-triggers us again and again and again. The feelings, they just arise and pass. Now, so that's the story of people who are insecure. Then there's the story of um, what's known as avoidance or people who fear engulfment. There's a crucial stage in a child's development, sometime around two, where it's very important that the primary caretaker release a little bit of the control of the child and let the child explore 
and connect with other adults or other children and uh, basically be able to feel a sense of uh, permission to wander about on their own. But uh, very often what happens is children do not have enough freedom or a parent becomes too controlling and very and often then what will happen is people will grow up to experience um, relationships as circumstances wherein we lose power, we lose control, we lose our freedom, we lose our ability to move and to, uh, to uh, uh, be liberated and to investigate the world. So such people, such avoidance people, will, in relationships, whenever anybody makes a, a, a plea for intimacy or for time or for commitment, those people will back off. Maybe some of you have dated this type of person. Uh, when asked for any reassurances, they won't give it. They'll demand complete control. They will have very strong, rigid boundaries that they rarely will be willing to break. They'll be embarrassed by any request for attention. And their biggest uh, uh, property is that they avoid any empathy. They don't like to feel empathy for other people, because, uh, especially people they're in a relationship with, because they feel that it will entrap them and guilt them into getting too close. So they will, when they start to feel empathy, which is feeling what another person is feeling, they will clamp it down because they don't want to feel another person's, especially somebody that they're in a relationship with, they don't want to feel their sadness, their vulnerability, so they're very good at numbing themselves. So you can imagine that People who are preoccupied with uh, abandonment fear and those who are avoidant of engulfment, they would be probably the two worst people to get into a relationship together, wouldn't they? And guess who always invariably dates one another in the world? They're kind of a perfect match because the insecure chases the avoidance around and it just becomes a, hey, where are you going? Where are you going? Why didn't you return my text? Why didn't you show up? What's going on? What did you mean by that? Blah, blah, blah. What the fuck is this person wanting from me? I just wanted intimacy-free sex. I didn't want to have any... I just like keeping people in my orbit, but I don't like to commit to anything. Why are they asking for something? I don't know why I'm doing that. <laughs> so, we all have those... Uh, tendencies, whether sometimes very weakly, sometimes strongly, it's worthwhile knowing uh, sometimes we might in the dating arena tend to fall into avoidance, but in, I know some guys who in dating they are the most avoidant creatures I've ever met. Like, you know, we had sex for three days and then a week later, she called me up. I don't know what she wants. What the fuck? <laughs> really? <laughs> but these guys, when they're in a band together, oh my God, do they become preoccupied with the other guys. 
He said he didn't like my song. <laughs> I just wrote a bass, a bass riff and he didn't like it and I don't know what to do. I, nothing I do is ever good enough. <laughs> so we all have our different patterns that we fall into and we have... Uh, uh, it's not confined by gender or anything. There's, it's basically... Uh, it's fluid. It's fluid. And we can, sometimes people in one relationship can be avoidant and distant and uh, not committed. And then in another relationship, they can be hooked, line and sicker, and drawn in and, and uh, captivated. So if we find ourselves in a avoidance situation, it's really useful to try to uh, work against that by giving ourselves, uh, trying to stay a little longer with someone, to give a little bit more reassurance than we're comfortable with, to uh, make eye contact a little longer, just to do something that stretches us out of this fleeing intimacy. And on the other hand, if we come from a, a tendency of being preoccupied, insecure, where we are uh, waiting for abandonment, keyed up, hypervigilant, looking for the sign that they're losing interest, uh, it's worthwhile to learn how to give a little bit more permission, more space to... Uh, and also, though, when you are around... Uh, the other person, don't be so willing, though, to drop one's boundaries or just go along with whatever the other one wants, because that also creates its problems. Very often people who are insecure are willing to just do anything. They will drop their boundaries. Some people I know have very strict boundaries about how many dates they want to go on before they'll have sex, but the moment the other person loses interest, that goes right out the window because they're just so desperate for that human connection. So, um, our defense mechanisms that we develop to uh, keep ourselves safe in relationships very often are the very thing that sabotage this this important realm of human uh, nature. Sometimes uh, we will learn all the wrong lessons from our previous rejections. We'll make rules for ourselves that are not boundaries. Boundaries are expressions of things that we're really not comfortable with. Rules, on the other hand, are often half-assed conclusions that we make from a, a relationship that goes awry that in no way has anything to do with what went wrong. I once heard a guy uh, say something along the lines of, well, that's the last time I'm ever going to date a brunette. <laughs> so it was her hair color that really went awry. I, I, <laughs> 
it's really important to know whether a boundary that we're setting is a real authentic expression of things that make us uncomfortable or if they're informed by the shoulds of the world. For a while there was a book called The Rules, which was the worst thing that ever happened <laughs> to the human species. <laughs> trying to legislate a kind of universal uh, yeah, sexist, puritanical uh, in, you know uh, yeah, disaster. Disaster. The truth is, is that the way we relate in relationships should be based on examining the kind of behaviors that cause us suffering and honoring that and building our uh, what's called boundaries and maintaining them to honor those limitations. Now, what are some of the other things that can go wrong with uh, our attempts to form relationships, whether with other people or with, uh, you know, lo lovers or with just friends? Well, according according to the it's a long time coming. to Robin Dunbar, great British psychologist, uh, theorist, human beings have a tendency to try to put uh, all of their emotional needs onto one person, what he calls an A person. Very often the A person is the person that we're in a relationship with, or it could be our best friend. It's that one person that we hope can hold all of our emotional risings that will help us regulate our fears and uh, help us sustain our elation. And we tend to seek out this because we all know that establishing secure bonds with other people is risky. It risks rejection. And uh, we have to risk abandonment if we're going to have open to other people to de develop real, true friendships. It doesn't feel easy. It feels difficult. And as you grow older in life, further away from the time when we were in school and friends are ready-made, you go to college, you're in some dorm, somebody knocks on your door and you're like, yeah, who are you? And they're like, I'm your friend for the six months. And you're like, oh great, that makes it easy, come, let's do a bong hit. <laughs> As we become adults, it's not quite that easy. The risk of opening up and saying more than... We know by the time we're in our 30s, pretty much what other people want to hear, what they expect to hear. What do they expect to hear or want to hear? Ah, everything's fine, looking good. Excited about that vacation coming up, Bob? Oh, yeah. Yeah. How's that big project going? Oh, it's going great. Let me tell you, I had a lot of projects. Busy? Yeah, I'm busy. You busy? Yeah, I'm busy. Good. It's good to be busy. Yeah. <laughs> nothing, nothing happens emotionally in that. That's barren material. 
there are cactuses rolling around in that conversation. Nothing. <laughs> when we somebody asks us how we're doing, we say fine. Nothing has been of any value has been transmitted. <laughs> Really, to go against the expected, to problematize and to create a, uh, uh, a challenging, vulnerable state requires us to go against the flow of so much of the adult um, uh, landscape. Some people can only do it at bars or with alcohol to turn off the self-conscious inner chatter of the frontal lobe. They desperately seek the GABA release of alcohol. Uh, so it's, uh, there's a tendency to basically seek one person to do all the heavy lifting. And unfortunately, human beings are not built to have one person just be the person who keeps us. According to Dunbar, the magic number is somewhere between six and 10. We need six and 10 B people not people you see every day, but people that you see once every couple of weeks, but people that you feel permitted whenever there's any difficult emotional state, frustrating event, setback in life, anything that you're struggling with, you feel permitted to call them up and share about the experience, and you'll feel safe knowing that that person will not try to fix or solve your problem, but they'll simply listen. And at most, they'll say something along the lines of, yeah, that sucks. <laughs> or, yeah, I know what that's like. In other words, they'll normalize the experience for you so that you can... Uh, when we experience difficult emotions, fears, obsessions, the, in, the first experience that will come with that is, oh no, there's something wrong. What's happening to me? So we take it personally and we overly greet emotions as dramatically threatening events. And so when somebody else says, oh yeah, I've, I know that experience, that feeling, I've been there, what they do for us, they normalize it. They let us know that it's possible to survive it, that we don't have to immediately rush around and try to get rid of these emotions, that we can actually be with them. Normalizing is one of the core interpersonal skills we can do along with mirroring, which just simply means to be present and to feel what somebody else is saying through empathy and allow our bodies naturally to express back the fact that we get, we understand. When somebody sees another person mirroring their experience, they feel safer. The right hemisphere of the brain knows that it's connected now and it can relax, it can release the tendency to go with fear, fight, flight, or freeze mechanisms. So it's very important to have be people. The Buddha drew a distinction between the Sangha and the Kalyanamita. The Sangha is a place you go where there's a teacher. I actually am a Buddhist teacher uh, empowered in the lineage of well, my teacher was, uh, I took my teacher training with Noah, and Noah took his teacher training with uh, Jack Cornfield, Jack Cornfield with the great Ajahn Chah, the great Ajahn Chah with Ma Bua, Mun, all the way back to the Buddha, you can trace that lineage. So you're he when you're here, you're at a Sangha when there's a teacher, but 
what's even more important than a sangha that you can go to uh, where you can practice and be with other people is the kalyanamita, the people that you can call on, befriend, turn to. They don't have to be necessarily Buddhists. They can be people that you feel just can receive your human experience, but they are of desperate importance. And one of the things that we do that sabotage and imbalance relationships is at the beginning of a new relationship, when we're in the joy and the bliss of the other, and she's so wonderful and he's so wonderful, is that we let our support groups fall away. We don't connect with the people that we have been connecting to to feel secure. And we, we do what's called bisolating. You know what that is? <laughs> Bisexual isolation. No, it's isolating with two people. So that's when two people just go into a little cocoon and they stop seeing their outside friends, doing their outside work. They, uh, they fall into all kinds of strategies in the first three months when the dopamines are flowing and they feel real good. And everything the other person says is just wonderful. Can you believe? What he said the other day. <laughs> and uh, what happens is we suddenly don't feel anymore like there's any bills to be paid. And the purposelessness of life that was felt so strongly before we had a relationship <laughs> has magically been lifted. <laughs> suddenly our life has purpose and meaning and... And all of these tendencies to drop, uh, all the embracing the rest of our lives when we get into a new relationship is just about the most self-sabotaging, thwarting, it's like planting a landmine in your life. <laughs> Why? Well, because what's going to happen is three or four months into a new relationship, guess what? The dopamine's going to, your brain's going to go, all right, you've had your share of dopamine. No more reward neurotransmitters for a while. Everything they're going to say for the next two weeks is going to be irritating. <laughs> and then you're going to return to your life and you're going to be, what the fuck happened here? Your friends are going to be, I haven't heard from you in four months. Why the fuck are you calling me now? And the, suddenly we realize, shit, I left that, that book half done four months ago, or my, that painting, you know, half finished, or, you know, I, I didn't attend to this or that. And plus, also our tendency to bail on the rest of life and focus on a new friend or a new relationship means we put too much pressure on that person. Eventually, when feelings of confusion or frustration at work comes up, one day there will come a time when you run to your, the new person in your life and you want them to be the one to regulate the frustration or the anger, to hear it, to understand it, to normalize it, to make it go away. They'll be narcissistically self-involved in their own bullshit. <laughs> I mean, 
I can't think about this. I'm fucked up too. I got this own my own shit I got to worry about. What are you coming to me for? For crying out loud. So if we don't have the other people, uh, this will create even more conflict when relationships start to um, start to uh, what's the verb I'm looking for? Bulge? No. Crack under the weight. That sounds rather. That sounds nice. Crack under the weight of expectations. So it's very important for our relationships to not only know our patterns, whether we tend to become avoidant or fear of abandonment, whether we become hypervigilant, looking for or suspicious, looking for uh, any sign of uh, uh, activity that uh, is, uh, feels uh, uh, uncomfortable, or whether we are put our heads in the clouds and don't look at red flags. It's important to know those tendencies, but it's also very important to continue the work of constantly reaching out and taking the risk of being vulnerable. Really, uh, the wonderful thing about true friendships is that they transform the most vulnerable experiences in our, of our lives into the bonds that unite us and keep us together. If you've had a difficult experience, a moment or frustrations in previous relationships or setbacks in life, they need not be uh, scars or demarcations of failure. What they are are opportunities to connect deeply with other people and to feel that you are accepted because you never can feel truly accepted by reporting all the wonderful shit that's going on in your life. Anybody can do that and it means nothing though in terms of uh, bonding. As the Buddha said, the real friends are the ones that will come around and listen to our tears and our distress when things are going poorly for us. And so it's, uh, it's an essential trait. And one of the ways we do this is by starting small. If you jump into the deep end of the pool, meet somebody at an office party or friends having a party or whatever, how's it going? Well, I'm lost in the purposelessness of my life. I let decades fall beneath my belt. I've been around the block a couple of times and I feel there's no meaning. I still haven't really found that creative spark I so thought I would have after graduate school. And now I wander through my life, a broken zombie, stumbling through the beneath the bent street lights of this I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> they might be a little bit put off. So it's important how do we do it slowly? How do we put our pinky toes into uh, developing true secure attachments? What we do is when we meet people that seem like they might be uh, uh, candidates for being a secure friendship, 
We start by simply reporting what the feeling is right then. One of the exercises I like to do is to, uh, and I would have done if I hadn't prattled on for so long with you guys, so you got off the hook this time, but is to break people up into groups and just have people go around and share what it, they're feeling at any moment and what is the dominant feeling of late that they don't want to share with other people. So when people come up to you at work or in a situation where you feel there's a degree of comfort, push ourselves towards that which is more authentic and honest. Delve a little deeper. Go to the places that Pima Chodron says that scare us. Find that that emotion, that the, the financial insecurity, the fear of um, uh, a project not being approved, uh, uh, a setback in our creative life, a setback in our uh, family. Go to those places. And if you find that the other person is not accepting, not empathetic, not tolerant, not sympathetic. Sympathetic means they understand and empathetic means they can feel what you're going through. If they can't provide what you need, at least you'll be developing the experience of being rejected and seeing that you can survive rejection. It's a really important skill to learn how to survive rejection. People who don't know they can survive rejections never submit their creative works for publication or for... They never take risks. They never try to reach out and form new creative endeavors. So being rejected is the toll we pay to connect authentically with others. It's worth it. It's worth it to once in a while people look at you strangely and go, I once, when I was depressed after 9-11... I ran into this guy and he said, what's going on? I'm going, I was like, you know, I'm really almost clinically depressed here. I've just got feelings of, uh, you know, uh, just feelings of uh, real insecurity. My, my chest feels like it's hollow. I feel like I'm strangling in my throat. I don't feel safe. I haven't been sleeping that much. Do you ever have that happen? He goes, no. <laughs> Throw me a fucking bone. <laughs> but there are people who do that. We will get emotionally dumped on occasion, and that's it's but that's that's part of the journey. If we don't allow ourselves to occasionally uh, have a disappointing interpersonal experience, we don't build up our emotional immune system so that we can take the risks, tolerate the difficult feelings so that we can build the trustworthy relationships that we all need. And finally, I'll conclude with, as I mentioned last week, in the baseline happiness studies that were started in the 70s, they did a meta-analysis of all of them, and one factor alone came across in every single, per, in every single study that was the factor that leads to higher levels of contentment and happiness. It's not money. It's not success in the world. It's not... Uh, power, prestige, it is the people who feel they are surrounded by a lot of close family members or friends. That is the sole factor in 
elevating human happiness. So if you want that, go out and get it. Thank you. <laughs>